0: Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 19 Feedback Informed Treatment Practices, Part 1. Well, thanks again for joining me here on Leading from Behind. Over the next two episodes, we'll take a brief departure from talking specifically about solution-focused therapy, and instead we'll be looking at feedback-informed treatment practices. Now, in short, this means soliciting brief but structured feedback from our clients on a session-by-session basis, and then, when it's necessary, using this feedback in collaboration with the client to make any adjustments in the work together. As you'll see, many of the principles that support this practice are very compatible with the foundations of solution-focused therapy. And, even better, the use of feedback-informed treatment practices has the potential to improve outcomes, reduce dropouts, wait lists, and the average length of time that some people spend in therapy. As well, feedback-informed treatment was recently approved as an evidence-based practice in the United States. Now, in this first of two episodes, I'm going to talk mainly about the rationale for using feedback-informed treatment practices in counseling or therapy. In our next episode, episode number 20, we'll look in detail at the specific tools used to solicit the feedback and how it's used in achieving the improvements mentioned a moment ago. Keep in mind, of course, that this is simply an introduction to this intriguing subject and, of course, represents our best understanding of it. In the resource section of the podcast, I'll provide several links to where you can learn more about feedback-informed treatment practices and how to incorporate them into your practice. So, once again, welcome to Leading From Behind. I hope you'll find this episode useful in your practice of solution-focused therapy. To begin, I'd like to draw two contrasting images of the broad field of psychotherapy. In the first image, we see a field where dedicated, caring professionals help people in times of distress. It's a noble profession that's been shaped by some brilliant thinkers, academics, researchers, and of course practitioners. And for the most part, the profession is generally held in high esteem by most people. Now, in contrast, let's consider another image of talk therapy. In this one, we see programs and services with lengthy waiting lists, high dropout rates, and in some instances, long term helping relationships without any discernible progress. We also hear about people who have poor experiences with psychotherapy, or at the very least, didn't find it to be helpful. And it's also a field where there is often very little in the way of accountability and transparency about actual outcomes in the services we provide. In fact, it's probably fair to say that the overwhelming majority of practitioners and programs have no tangible evidence of their own rate of effectiveness. Now, there's no doubt that the first image is indeed true. There's very clear evidence that therapy is helpful for a good number of people. But the second image is one that's increasingly capturing the attention of both consumers and governments. And as a result, there's a clear message here that we need, if I could put it in solution-focused terms, to do something different when it comes to accountability and transparency in achieving better and more efficient outcomes. For decades, research has largely focused on which therapeutic approaches are most effective and for which problems. This strategy, which really mirrors the way medical treatments have been determined as best practices, has only resulted in a constant battle between different approaches for claims of supremacy. But meanwhile, overall outcomes in talk therapy haven't improved in over 30 years. So the enduring question remains as follows. What are the best predictors of outcome in psychotherapy? Well, a number of people have been looking very closely at this question, and in a number of different ways. Using meta-analyses of outcome and other research in psychotherapy, people like Michael Lambert and his colleagues, Scott Miller, Barry Duncan, Bruce Wampold, Mark Hubble, and many others have identified some key findings that underline what works and what doesn't in achieving positive outcomes. Now, in reviewing these findings, let's look first at what doesn't have very much impact on outcome. This is important because you might be surprised by some of them. In fact, for some clinicians, it's very difficult to accept these findings, given the strength of their own beliefs about what works. So, what doesn't work or contribute significantly to a positive outcome in psychotherapy? Well, here's a quick list. First, model of practice, especially the specific techniques associated with a particular approach. Second, matching treatment approach to the presenting problem. Third, assessment and diagnosis. And fourth, most therapist characteristics. In other words, the therapist's discipline or profession, years of training and certification, gender, age, or even experience. Now, let me say a bit more about each of these. First, despite frequent and generally accepted claims, no bona fide therapeutic approach has been found through meta-analysis to be superior than any other. That's right. There's no so-called gold standard of treatment. Now, if you're an ardent cognitive behavioral practitioner, I know that might be kind of hard to accept. And for the often dismissed solution-focused practitioner, this might be better news. Secondly, unlike the medical profession, there is no evidence that a particular problem can be more effectively resolved by using a particular therapeutic approach. And unfortunately, many organizations, services, and clinicians structure their efforts in this way. Third, assessment and diagnosis, or an expert naming of the problem, doesn't influence whether or not a positive outcome can be achieved. And again, many helping professionals would see these processes as integral to a positive outcome. Finally, the professional and academic qualifications of the clinician isn't a factor in achieving positive outcomes. In other words, it doesn't matter whether the therapist is a psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, occupational therapist, or mental health nurse. And, somewhat surprisingly, years of experience, training, and clinical supervision don't have much impact either. Nor does age or gender. So, let's shift then to what the research suggests are the best predictors of outcome in psychotherapy. There's two clear factors that, taken together, are the best predictors of a positive outcome. Now, the first important factor in positive outcomes in talk therapy is the client's perception of the therapeutic alliance. In other words, one, whether or not the client feels heard, understood, and respected. Two, whether there's agreement on what's important to the client and what the client wants from the work together. And finally, three, whether the means and methods and manner in which services are provided, work for the client. Now, I should underline here that it's the client's view of the therapeutic alliance that is most critical, not the clinician's. In fact, there are several pieces of research available that suggest that we, as practitioners, tend to overrate both the strength of the therapeutic alliance as well as the degree of progress made by the client. As a result, clinicians, as a whole, are not particularly good at predicting who is at risk for dropout or a poor outcome. So, research seems to underline that practitioners who are skilled in developing a positive therapeutic alliance with a broad range of different clients are more likely to achieve better overall outcomes. So, a key question is, what are these therapists doing that's worth paying attention to? Now, unfortunately, this isn't entirely clear yet, However, it's worth noting that there's some evidence that clinicians who spend more time focused on conversation that mobilizes the client's strengths and resources, as opposed to uh, more time focused on problems and what's wrong with people, are more likely to achieve a better therapeutic alliance. Now, from a solution-focused therapy perspective, this is good news, since this is a key element of our approach. Now, of course, there are many clinicians who acknowledge the importance of the therapeutic alliance, but still hold fast to the belief that diagnosis, assessment, and the so-called right therapeutic approach are what's needed. Well, consider then some research evidence regarding the effectiveness of medication. Interestingly, there are findings that suggest that clients who have a good therapeutic alliance with their psychiatrist are more likely to find benefit from medication. Or, put differently, medication is less likely to be helpful if the client doesn't have a positive therapeutic alliance with the psychiatrist. This is certainly notable, as you would expect that medication benefits would have no relationship whatsoever with the quality of the relationship with the person who prescribed them. Now, a positive therapeutic alliance by itself isn't a predictor of a positive outcome. After all, you could still quite easily have such a relationship with the client, yet still have an absence of any meaningful progress. So it's important then to be thinking instead about a poor therapeutic alliance as being linked to a negative outcome. So when we're seeking structured feedback from a client about the alliance, we want to be aware of any feedback that something's amiss. This gives us an opportunity to address any concerns and make any changes that could improve the therapeutic alliance. Now, in combination with the quality of the therapeutic alliance, the other best predictor of outcome in psychotherapy is the matter of early progress. The research indicates that early progress, typically within the first three sessions, is associated with a positive outcome. Conversely, the absence of progress within this time is associated with either a poor outcome or client dropout. Once again, it's important to note here that it's the client's perception of progress and not the clinician's. So, with this predictor of outcome in mind, it becomes vitally important for clinicians to pay close attention to the client's reporting of progress. If there's an absence of progress reported during the early stages of contact with the client, there's an opportunity then to engage in a discussion about this. In collaboration with the client, it might be possible to make changes in some aspect of the service being provided that might promote a movement forward. Given that the Therapeutic Alliance and early progress have been established as the best predictors of outcome in therapy, feedback-informed treatment practices involve using two ultra-brief questionnaires administered at the beginning and end of each session held with the client. Now, as I mentioned, we'll look at these tools in more detail in our next episode, but here's a brief overview of each. First, the Outcome Rating Scale is administered prior to the session and allows clients to indicate their level of subjective distress in four areas. Their sense of personal well-being, the strength of their family and other close relationships, and the quality of their social connections. Finally, there's an overall rating of their general sense of well-being. Now, the session rating scale is given at the end of each session and invites clients to assess four elements of the therapeutic alliance. This includes a rating of whether they felt heard, understood, and respected, whether they felt that what was important to them was discussed, and whether the therapist's approach was a good fit. Finally, clients provide an overall rating of the session. Now, it's important to note here that both measures must be used in order for the results of each to be of any clinical value. For example, if there is no improvement in the client's circumstances after the first number of sessions, the absence of any information about the therapeutic alliance would make it hard to determine whether something needed to change. Now, as we near the end of this discussion, I'd like to say a bit more about feedback-informed treatment practices and its relationship with the solution-focused approach. First, you might be wondering why it's even necessary, then, to develop your skills in solution-focused practice, if the therapeutic approach doesn't have a significant impact on outcome. Well, it's important to keep in mind here that using and having an allegiance to a bona fide approach, such as solution-focused therapy, is still an important consideration within the Therapeutic Alliance. So, for example, if I'm passionate and believe in the solution-focused approach and it fits or makes sense to the client as far as means or methods are concerned, then it's far more likely to be helpful. At the same time, if I adhere rigidly to a solution-focused approach despite feedback from the client that suggests progress isn't being made or that the means or methods aren't a good fit, then we're more likely to have a poor outcome or dropout. Secondly, it's important that we use a bona fide approach. In other words, one, like, again, solution-focused therapy, that's recognized as an approach that has a particular structure and is intended to be useful. If we simply fly by the seat of our pants and use a mixed bag of techniques and approaches, the client is far less likely to find that our means and methods make sense. As a result, the therapeutic alliance is likely to suffer. Finally, soliciting feedback from our clients about the therapeutic alliance and progress is most certainly in keeping with the collaborative nature of solution-focused therapy. Honouring their feedback in this way is also a reflection of the solution-focused position that clients have expertise about their own lives. As well, making adjustments in the work together as a result of feedback remains strongly in keeping with the solution-focused principle that if something's not working, It's time to do something different. In keeping with the subject of this week's episode, I'd like to mention two resources that might be useful if you'd like to learn more about the research behind feedback-informed treatment as well as the process for incorporating it into your work. Now, if you'd like to find out more about either one of these resources, you can certainly click on the links on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca. Now, by far, one of the best places to start in understanding the rationale for soliciting feedback from our clients is the following book. The Heart and Soul of Change, Doing What Works in Therapy, is a comprehensive review of 40 years of research on the subject. Edited by Barry Duncan, Mark Hubble, Scott Miller, and Bruce Wampold, this is a classic book that should be required reading for anyone engaged in counseling or therapy. Now, the second useful resource is Scott Miller's website at scottdmiller.com. His site has a wealth of information relating to feedback-informed treatment. This includes videos, books, and manuals pertaining to the practice, as well as a link where you can obtain your own free copy of the Outcome Rating Scale and Session Rating Scale that are suitable for personal use. Finally, there's a blog that often includes his commentary regarding the field of psychotherapy and the subject of outcomes and what works. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you once again for joining me. As mentioned earlier in our next episode, number 20, we'll take a closer look at how the outcome rating scale and the session rating scale are used in practice. Now, if you have questions or comments about this or any other episode of Leading From Behind, please feel free to let us know. Or, if you'd like us to mention a book, website, or training opportunity relating to solution-focused practice in an upcoming episode, again, feel free to let us know. To do so, or to leave a comment or question, you can go to the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca, or simply send an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. New episodes of Leading From Behind are generally available on or about the beginning and middle of each month. To subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your computer or mobile device, you can do so through iTunes. Simply click on the link on the podcast page of our website, again at hbtc.ca, to locate the podcast in the iTunes Store. Or you can find us in the training subsection of the education category in the iTunes Store itself. In closing, our thanks as usual to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading from Behind, episode number 19. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join me again.